like to read with you our text for this morning. What we're going to do as we read here, I'm going to read this to you, but also I want to make sure we notice that we're adding Jonah chapter 3 verse 10 to this particular reading. I think it's important we see that connection between the final verse of chapter 3 and then chapter 4. Let me read, let me read to you the, the Word of God. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that, he might be a, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun arose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let's pray together. Father, this word is breathed by your Spirit. And therefore, it is profitable for teaching, for correction, for instruction, for training in righteousness, that we as your people may be complete and equipped for every good work. Your Word, this Word, is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword that pierces to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. And it indeed bears us before you lays us open before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. So, Father, we we come to You. And we ask that You would do Your great work in us, for who can discern His errors? We need You to declare us innocent from hidden faults. We need You to keep us back from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over us. We want to be blameless and innocent of great transgression. We ask you that through your word, you would cause the words of our mouths and the meditations, even the meditations of our heart, 
to be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you indeed are our rock and our redeemer. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. You are indeed our rock and our redeemer. We ask you, Father, to do a good work of salvation and sanctification among us through your word, even this morning we pray. In the name of Jesus, and for your glory, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 say the words that we prayed together just now. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. How many of us have prayed that prayer over the course of our lives in walking with the Lord? I, I assume that it's frequented our tongue. And Jonah chapter 4 is truly quite a thought-provoking, probing, convicting section of Scripture. If we will not resist it, if we will, by God's Spirit, open our hearts to it. And so let's, let's take David's prayer to our own hearts as we walk through this final chapter together. Jonah. Indeed, the, the theme is here as well. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We've seen this already in the lives of the mariners that Jonah paid to get him to Tarshish as he was running from God, running from the Word and the command of God. We've seen this in the life of Jonah as he was, had a refuge in the belly of the whale and then rescued and, and spat out on shore and sent on his way to Nineveh. We've seen this in the life of the city of Nineveh where God brought a great awakening to this, this particular city. But, as we will see in this section of Scripture, and as you probably have already seen as we've read, Jonah still has a long way to go, just like all of us. It's not one and done with our Heavenly Father teaching us, is it? It's again and again and again until we see Him face to face. We still have a long way to go in seeing our own remaining indwelling sin and seeing it overcome and removed from our daily lives. We, like Jonah, still need the Lord's ongoing work of salvation in our lives. When we say this word salvation, we don't just mean that someone is brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. The word salvation extends beyond what we call justification. It goes right on into the Christian life and the Lord in His kindness and His faithfulness is continuing to pull from our lives so many sins, so many patterns of sin. And, and the, 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 the thing about it is, is that those patterns of sin go way down deep into our hearts, don't they? There's, there's disoriented desires that are at work every day in our hearts. And we need this chapter for that reason. So, by God's grace, let's submit to the work of the Spirit this morning through this chapter. And please know that I am sitting next to you in this. This is, this is the Word of God working on my heart as it is yours. Number one this morning, and it's a bit of a review from last Sunday, Yahweh's mercy toward Nineveh. This is chapter 10. We have to see this again before we run into the beginning of chapter 4. First, I want you to remember the, the first action here in, in, the, in, the word, in the verse 10. When God saw. God saw what He brought about so graciously in the life of Nineveh. What did He see? He saw godly grief there. They tore their clothes. They put on sackcloth. They sat in ashes. They fasted. They prayed. There was a a spirit-wrought, powerful work of godly grief in, in this pagan nation. 
there was genuine repentance. They desired to turn from specific sin, like their violence. That's, that's why Jonah hated them. That's why Israel hated the Assyrians, is because they were a violent people that had already begun to, to wreak havoc in the nations around them. And you saw saving faith there, because they looked to Yahweh and said, perhaps, perhaps He will be merciful to us. Yahweh saw all of that. And one of the things that we see in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 41 that absolutely confirms that this was genuine repentance and faith and salvation is that Jesus says there that the men of Sodom will rise up on the day of judgment and condemn Israel. Now that is quite an indictment for Israel to read. Here, this letter of Jonah, this prophecy of Jonah is an indictment for Israel. Because it's, it's all topsy-turvy. It's, it's Jonah and Israel should have been acting like Nineveh in repentance and humility before their great God. And yet, this pagan nation is. And now Jesus says on the day of judgment it will be the, the members of that generation of Nineveh who will stand up and condemn the unbelieving Jews. Isn't that something? Their salvation was genuine. They will be right with God on the day of judgment. And so how did Yahweh respond to this? He saw, but then Yahweh relented. Yahweh kindly responded to the spiritual life and work of grace that He created in the hearts of the Ninevites. And He always does that. Wherever He begins a work of godly grief, repentance, and faith, He responds with salvation. He mercifully chose not to pour out the deserved disaster upon them. And notice how the verse turns these phrases over and over. God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them and He did not do it. This is emphatic here. You have to see this. The, the, the reader should look at this and be like, wow, really? God said He would destroy this city, but He's not doing it. He's showing mercy. This is absolutely amazing. This is an emphatic, astounding Mercy. And I here see the seeds of Romans 15, 8-13 beginning to sprout. It says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. That's what Nineveh is doing. Glorifying God for His mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you who Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come and he who arises to rule the Gentiles and him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So we leave Jonah chapter 3 rejoicing with the Ninevites. Look at the salvation of the Lord. God can do this at any time, in any place, with any people that He desires to. He loves to save. This is who He is. He delights in steadfast love. Now, Something very unexpected happens next in the narrative. Well, Yahweh responded with great mercy to Nineveh's repentance and faith, how does Jonah respond to God's mercy being poured out on Nineveh? This is so shocking to us. We're like, Jonah, what's wrong with you? How many of us would give in a right arm to be there? To see this kind of awakening. What, what would you have done in the state of mind that you are? Don't you, don't you think you would have just run through the city and see how many people you can help? Put your arm around them, show them your scroll, and point them to the steadfast love of Yahweh. You would think that that's what Jonah would be doing now. But that's not at all what happened. Number two this morning, Jonah's displeasure with God. Verses 1-5 through five show this plainly. I want to begin by looking at Jonah's prayer. We'll come back to verse 1, but notice Jonah's prayer in verse 2. 
And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said? I told you so. I told you this was going to happen. Isn't this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Isn't that so strange that this is Jonah's prayer? This prayer shows his displeasure with God. It's an angry prayer. It's an angry prayer. Oh Lord, isn't this what I said? I told you this was going to happen. I didn't want this to happen. I'm upset about this. What? The salvation of Nineveh. That's how Jonah feels about God pouring out mercy on Nineveh. This is an angry prayer. Jonah did not get his way. Second, it's a, it's a self-justifying prayer. Look what he says. That is why. As if he's justified. That's why I ran away. Because I knew that if I went and preached your message to Nineveh, they would repent and you would be merciful. That's why I ran away. I have a good reason for doing so. Jonah, what are you saying? It's an angry prayer. It's a self-justifying prayer. I'm, this is a strange way of putting this, but it's a knowledgeably ignorant prayer. It's a knowledgeably ignorant prayer. Look what he says about God. He goes, I knew. There's things that Jonah knows. He's a prophet. He's been trained. He's been taught. Maybe he was one of the students in, in, the, in the sons of the prophets, or at least maybe mentored by one of the sons of the prophets. He knows the Word of God. And so he knows who God is. He knows a lot about God but he clearly does not know God as he ought to. He says, that's why I knew you are a gracious God, merciful, sort of anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Since he knew God was like that, he did not want to go to Nineveh. Of course God is going to save people because that's what he is like. That's who he is. God can't act independently of who he is. He's a savior. He delights to show steadfast love. So this is a knowledgeably ignorant prayer. He knows a lot about God, but he does not know God as he ought to. This is an idolatrous prayer. He's putting himself in the place of God to make judgment, to give mercy and deliver punishment. He is feeling here that his evaluation of himself and Nineveh is correct and that he should receive mercy, but Nineveh received judgment. Whose place is that to decide those things? God's and God's alone. This is an idolatrous prayer. This is a dishonoring prayer. Again, I think of how he's talking about God to God. He's not happy in this prayer. He's not delighted in this prayer that God is indeed gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster, he's talking about God to God as if that's a weakness in God. That's dishonorable. That's dishonoring to God. Disrespectful. Think carefully about his words here in verse 2. Jonah here is probably quoting from Exodus 34, 6 through 7. When you read those words, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, doesn't that recall to your mind Exodus 34? Maybe you should turn there. Look at it for just a moment. Exodus 34. And of course, Jonah would certainly know this text about the character of God. And you really have to remember the context of this section. It's set in one of the most astounding encounters with God in all of the Scripture, and it includes a breathtaking display of, of the glory of God, Exodus 34. And when you consider the greater context of Exodus 32-34, through 34, it's absolutely shocking to me and to us that Nineveh, that Jonah would even refer to it and respond to God's mercy on Nineveh the way that he does. Remember the context? Moses is on Mount Sinai. He's receiving the Ten Commandments. 
The people and Aaron get tired of waiting. He's taking too long. Maybe he's dead. Maybe Moses is dead. Maybe there isn't really Yahweh who brought us out of the land of Egypt. And so they got tired of waiting for Moses and made, uh, and made a, a golden calf to represent the gods, plural, by the way, the text says, gods, plural, who brought them out of Egypt. Yahweh and Moses were then furious with the idolatry of the people, but what does Moses do? Moses intercedes. He stands as intercessor. A wonderful type of Christ there. Moses intercedes to Yahweh, pleading with him to be merciful toward Israel and to honor his name in the earth. That's one of the reasons God, Moses gave to God in prayer that he wouldn't destroy Israel for this immediate idolatry. He says, if you do this, your name will be dishonored among the surrounding nations, for they all know that you are bringing your people out so that they may worship you and be your people. You're going to bring your people out in the wilderness and then destroy them? And so God graciously, mercifully receives Moses' intercession, though he does chasten his people, but he was so merciful to them and he did not totally destroy them by his holy wrath, which they deserved. This is Israel we're talking about. And so Yahweh dealt with his people in steadfast love and faithfulness rather than justice and wrath. Then, here, Jonah, knowing this very account and referring to the very perfections of Yahweh that are revealed in this account, is angry at Yahweh for expressing the very perfections that are who he is and extending mercy to those who do not deserve it. Look what... Look what uh, is written in Exodus 34, then verses 6 and 7, the Lord passed by before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. See, that's who God was to Israel. Should not God be that way to Nineveh? Jonah's angry words are truly dishonoring to God. It's a dishonoring prayer. Jonah knows who Yahweh is, but bitterly disapproves of Yahweh actually being who he is to Nineveh. Jonah and his people are the recipients of the blessings of such mercies that have overflowed to them from the perfections of Yahweh, and yet he does not want Nineveh to enjoy those same blessings of mercy. Jonah is so bitter at Nineveh for their violence against Israel that he has completely forgotten the sinfulness of Israel and his own sin against Yahweh. That's what's going on in, in Jonah's heart. Jonah must think that he and Israel somehow are worthy of Yahweh's mercy while Nineveh is not. Jonah is not delighting in who God is or what Yahweh does, what Yahweh has done for Israel, and he's certainly not delighting in what Yahweh was doing for Nineveh. So there's Jonah's prayer, full of anger and self-justification, ignorance, idolatry, dishonor, bitterness. The Lord has stopped Jonah from running. The Lord did bring Jonah to repentance. The Lord rescued Jonah from the belly of the fish. The Lord sent Jonah on a course of obedience to his word. The Lord even used Jonah, this Jonah, to proclaim his message to the Ninevites, but Jonah still has a long way to go before he becomes a humble, submissive servant, delighting wholeheartedly in Yahweh's will and who God is and his saving purposes. So there, we have Jonah's prayer. Let's look secondly, let her be there, Jonah's attitudes. This comes, comes through clearly as well. Notice verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. So there is exceeding displeasure and there is anger. Oops, there's anger. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. Extreme upset about Yahweh being merciful to those whom he would have otherwise damned. Jonah's displeased with God's salvation. He's angry. What he wanted to happen didn't happen. And notice also in verse 3, we could say that Jonah is even suicidal here. 
He does not want to live to face the outcome of God's mercy on Nineveh. This is how angry and hopeless Jonah feels. He says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. Jonah hated the Ninevites. He didn't want them to be saved. He didn't want God to show mercy to them. He, actually, he, didn't he try as hard as he could to prevent all this? By running. He didn't get his way. And so he's furious, he's angry, he's pouting, he's hopeless in his own skewed, perverted, bitter cause. And he certainly doesn't want to go back to Israel and face all of his pharisaical, bitter friends and tell them, hey, God used me to bring salvation to Nineveh. But that would certainly humiliate him. And so Jonah wanted his life to end. Let us see. Look at Jonah's actions. You can see Jonah's actions clearly in verse 5. He went out of the city. He sat to the east of the city. And he made a booth for himself there. And he sat under the shade till he would see. Till he would see what would become of the city. Three things come to mind here. One, I like to say it this way. He ran out of the revival. He just ran out of the revival. The Lord is calling Nineveh to spiritual life, repentance, and faith, and people are being saved in the streets, and people are confessing their sins. They're humbling themselves. They're pleading for mercy. The work of the Holy Spirit is spreading like wildfire through the city. That's what the account shows us. This massive metropolis of of Nineveh is turning to the Lord. And so, Jonah's like, I'm out of here. I don't want to see this. He ran out of the city. He sat out of the service. Jonah should have been ministering all over the city, praying with people, reaching to people, counseling people, helping people to turn to God, comforting people with the gospel. And Jonah's sitting. He made a booth for himself here. He's sitting doing nothing, but bitterly pouting about his own pride and self-pity. And look at, notice this last phrase. Till he should see what would become of the city. What is Jonah doing there? He's actually waiting for wrath to come. He's hoping that this will not be long until actually God does pour out wrath. He's going to see what will become of the city. Wow. Hoping that he can watch God burn the city of Nineveh. Jonah's proud, bitter, and sinful heart is coming out through his prayer, his attitudes, and his actions. Can you see it? Looking at it, looking at his attitudes. Prayer, the words that his mouth is speaking, and his actions. Attitudes, words, actions, revealing his heart. As we consider it, we may not think that Jonah's condition and responses to God's mercy, we may think that Jonah's condition and responses to God's mercy are, are absolutely crazy, right? That's probably how we feel right now. We're like, man, that's, that's absolutely absurd that he should be like this. Until maybe we place him in a more contemporary context. How did the Jews feel about the Nazis in 1940s? Think about that now. That brings it a little closer home to heart. How do we feel about that when we watch a World War II documentary? That, that can bring it a little nearer. That's probably one of the most comparative contemporary scenes. How does Israel feel about Hamas today? Right, it's this, this amazing that we can go through Jonah while this is happening over in Israel. Hamas, Israel, Assyria, Israel, very much the same feelings between them. Now, now that makes a little more sense, doesn't it? How did, our, how did our grandparents even feel about the Nazis or the Japanese people during World War II? I remember my grandparents talking about these things. How do we feel about Islamic terrorists today? We see all over our internet you know, sometimes when you remember the Twin Towers, right? How do we feel about that? How do we feel about those people? Would we take delight in God showing them mercy and saving them? 
or would we rather God pour out His wrath on them? God's just judgments are always right. But how does our heart respond to these things? Would you be displeased for God to save and be merciful to someone who has hurt you more than you can say? That's where it really comes home. Think of the person in your life who has hurt you. Maybe, maybe you've never told anyone the depths of the pain that you felt from someone. Can your heart then align a little bit more with Jonah's there? Are we happy with God for saving us, but upset with God for saving them? Are we any more worthy of salvation than anyone else in all of human history? You see, our hearts are not as far removed from Jonah's heart as we might think. In fact, we are imper- if we are perfectly honest, our hearts can beat with the same rhythm as Jonah's many times. The Holy Spirit meant for Israel to see themselves in Jonah and be confronted with the true condition of their hard hearts. And the Holy Spirit means for us to see ourselves in Jonah too. You and I are Jonah. That's why God wrote this. To help us to see how much we need Jesus as our Savior. So will God abandon Jonah now? Is there hope for him to change and share God's passions? Will the Lord help Jonah in his anger and bitterness? Or will he just be done with him? No, you see, salvation belongs to the Lord, right? That's the theme of this this prophecy. And just as the Lord delights to show mercy and grace to Nineveh, He delights to show mercy and grace to Jonah. He delights to show mercy and grace to us so that we may be changed and share God's passion for the salvation of sinners. That's what Jonah is about. Number three, our final point this morning. Yahweh's appointment with Jonah. I'm so glad God makes appointments with sinners. Aren't you? Yahweh's appointment with Jonah. This is verses 6 through 11. Let me read it again. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, but When dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor. Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perish in a night. And I should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. The Lord of steadfast love and faithfulness and kindness and mercy and grace goes to work on Jonah's heart again. He appointed. You see how many times the word appointed shows up in this book? It's so good that God appoints these things for the salvation of His beloved. What's the first thing He appointed? A fish. And then God appoints a plant. And then God appoints a worm. And then God appoints a wind. It's all the same word. This is God at work in the heart of His people. Jonah's heart needs help. Jonah needs help to see his sinful heart for himself, to be humbled, to be repentant, and to be changed, to become more like Yahweh by the grace of Yahweh. So, letter A, let's just notice Yahweh's object lessons. First, he appoints a shading plant. Yahweh is actually being very kind to Jonah here in this. He brought this shading plant up from the ground for Jonah so that the sun would be shielded and it would deliver him from discomfort. But that's not the only kindness that the Lord is showing 
Jonah here. He's also kindly revealing to Jonah the disoriented, depraved desires of his heart that are producing his bad attitudes, bitter words, selfish actions, dishonoring prayer, his sinful responses to Yahweh's mercy on Nineveh. You say, how is the plant doing that? I'll show you in just a moment. Let's catch the other two object lessons. So God not only sends a shading plant, but an attacking worm. Verse 7, and what is he doing now? God is removing from Jonah's life something that brought him comfort and pleasure. He's helping Jonah to recognize his responses to the loss of something that he loved. Something that brought him pleasure. And so again, he's kindly revealing to Jonah the disoriented, depraved desires of his heart that are producing bad attitudes and bitter words and so on. But then Yahweh appoints something else. It's, he is appointing this scorching wind. Now God's moving even more comfort from Jonah's situation. God is helping Jonah to recognize his responses not only to the loss of something that brought him pleasure, but also to the addition of something undesirable that brings him further and increased discomfort. Do you see the general working of God here? Giving something of pleasure. Removing it. Adding something of displeasure. What is God doing? God is just exposing Jonah's heart all over the place. And that is exactly how our God deals with His beloved children. This is how He disciplines His children and changes them to be more like His Son. He reveals them to be deceitful and disoriented and depraved in their desires of their heart that that make up the roots and source of their sinful thoughts, words, and attitudes and actions. He reveals to His children the depravity that is in their hearts and brings it to the surface for them to see. How does He do that? By removing from their lives things that bring them pleasure and comfort and by placing into their lives things that bring them displeasure and discomfort. God reveals His children's remaining depravity of heart in this very way so that His children may see it for themselves, grieve over it, confess it, repent of it, enjoy His forgiveness for it, and experience His grace to change. God doesn't do this because He delights in hurting His children, but because He delights in healing them from the sin sickness of their hearts. How many of us have been put in the hot water of God's circumstances so that what's in our tea bags come right out? That's what what God's doing here. He's putting Jonah the tea bag right in the hot water of circumstances. Stirring it around and say, Jonah, see. See what's in your heart. This is why you're responding to the salvation of Nineveh the way you are. Now let's see how Jonah's heart is revealed by his responses. Letter B, so you have Yahweh's object lessons. You see Jonah's responses. Jonah's responses. And, and they're actually it's just so vivid here. So first, in verse 6, Jonah is exceedingly glad. That's his first response. He's exceedingly glad at the plant. Exceedingly glad. Where have you heard that word before? There's nothing wrong with being glad over plants or any other material thing that the Lord gives to us. And the shade and the beauty that they bring to us. But don't these words remind you of verse 1? Jonah is exceedingly glad for the plant, but what? He's exceedingly displeased in verse 1. For what? He's exceedingly displeased for the salvation of Nineveh? So he's exceedingly glad for a stinking plant and he's exceedingly displeased for the salvation of hundreds of thousands of people. Something is dreadfully wrong with Jonah, right? That's what God is doing. He's like, look at how you responded to this, Jonah. Look at how you're responding to the plant. The attitudes that are coming out of your heart. And then verses 8 and 9, what's Jonah's emotion, his response there? There he's angry again. 
when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down. So, so there's the worm that comes and withers the plant. There's, there's the, the east wind that is scorching his head. Now, I'm, I'm sure that many of us have felt sad over the loss of a plant that we enjoyed. And, and, and remember, plant is really an analogy of anything temporary, right? But angry? Angry about it? Even unto death? And again, these words remind us of verse 1. Jonah was angry there too. So Jonah is angry over the loss of a plant, but he's also angry over what? The salvation of a sinful people? Something is dreadfully wrong with Jonah's heart. Same emotion. Losing the plant, saving the people. Angry. And like I said before, he's suicidal even. He says, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. It's better for me to die than to live. Those words remind us of not only verse 3, where he felt that same way about God showing, it, um, God showing mercy to, to Nineveh, but also reminds us of chapter 1 and verse 12, where Jonah said to the mariners, hey, done with this, just throw me overboard. He wanted to die. Jonah says that he wants to die after the plant died, and as the east wind roasted by the beating sun, scorches him and makes him feel faint. Jonah's displeasure, anger, and bitterness toward Nineveh and anger toward God and his being merciful to Nineveh is coloring everything and causing him to act really in an infantile way, even to the daily events of his life. How can it be that he feels the same emotion over a plant dying as the people being saved? That is what should be upfront in Jonah's heart. In mind and ours too. Something is dreadfully wrong. Now, having brought Jonah's heart to the surface, the Lord now exposes his heart even further, and he does so through some questions. Isn't it wonderful when God asks us questions? Jesus asked questions, and keep in mind, Jesus is God, and so God never asks questions in order to gain information for himself. He already knows all things perfectly. He asks questions to reveal to us our own hearts. So three probing questions I see in these texts. Jonah, my servant, my child. Verse 4, do you do well to be angry? Do you have a good reason for being angry? That's what God is asking. Is your anger well placed? Is it right for you to be angry? at my being merciful to Nineveh. Is that, is that good? Is that just? Is that right? Verse 9 is the second question. Same one. You do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah, my servant, my child, you do, ang- do well to be angry for the plant. Is that, is that good? What does that mean about you? And then there's one more question that comes in verse 11. Jonah, my servant, my child, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh? That's the last question. Shouldn't I pity Nineveh, Jonah? A great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Yahweh is drawing Jonah's attention to his anger and asking him to evaluate what reasons are behind his anger so that he may see clearly the perversion of his own affections. That's what he's doing so kindly, so mercifully. And by the way, dear ones, sinful anger is such an important attitude to pay attention to in your own life, isn't it? Sinful anger reveals to us something about ourselves, about our hearts. Whenever sinful anger comes up within you, do you stop and check? Why am I angry? 
Do I do well to be angry? (laughs) What does sinful anger mean? It's like a red flag that should go up in our minds. Why am I so angry about this? Red flag. We want something that God has sovereignly refused to us or removed from us. That's what anger means. Sinful anger. Not righteous anger. Sinful anger. We want something that God has sovereignly refused to us or removed from us. Or we don't want something that God has sovereignly ordained for us. We want to resist what God's will has determined. We won't rest or take refuge and contentment in God. We won't align our wills and our desires with God's. We will do what it takes to get our way and sin against God and others in the pursuit of our will. Our will is mismanaged. Our affections are misprioritized. Our hope is misdirected. Our contentment is misplaced. Our desires have become idolatrous. That's what sinful anger means. Do we realize that? Sinful anger is a moment to counsel yourself in the Word of God. Just as Jonah's was. And having been asked these three probing questions by God, Jonah then gives three pitiful responses. We often do. What's his first response? The first, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? What's his first answer? Silence. He doesn't answer God. The second one, Jonah, do you well to be angry for the plant? And he says, yes, I do well to be angry, even unto death. And the last question, should not I pity Nineveh? What's Jonah's answer? Silence. He doesn't have an answer. I think part of the reason for the silence is probably because Jonah knew that he didn't have a good answer worth the dirt he was sitting on, right? God has a way of stopping our arguments, doesn't he? Hmm. But I think the other part of the reason for the silence, and particularly at the end of this book, have you noticed that it doesn't resolve? The tension is unresolved at the end of the book? That's not an accident. That's a spirit-inspired tension. We need to put ourselves in the place of Jonah. That's what this book is calling us to do. We indeed are like him. And we need to answer the questions for ourselves. This prophecy of Jonah ends without resolution because the tension is meant to fall to us so that we may resolve this dilemma for ourselves and be changed ourselves by the grace of God. So now we come to the profound point. Here it is. I'll take a running start. Jonah was exceedingly glad about the sprouting of a plant, but exceedingly displeased about the salvation of a people. Jonah was angry over the destruction of a plant and angry over the deliverance of a people. God's prophet has pity for insignificant earthly things which he did not make or nurture, which are utterly transient, here today and gone tomorrow. That's what God's saying to him. You pity the plant. You didn't labor for it. You didn't make it grow. It came in a night and it died in a night. You've got pity for that? Shouldn't I have pity over these? But God's prophet has no pity on Nineveh. And worse, he's displeased and angry because Yahweh has had pity on the great city filled with sinful human beings just like Jonah whom He created in His image and sustained by His power who are eternal beings, not plants, they're people. And will spend their eternity either in the presence of God's love or in the presence of His wrath. Here's the point. Jonah's deepest affections, desires, and pleasures are opposite to Yahweh's affections, desires, and pleasures. That's what God wants to bring Jonah to see. Jonah, you are so misaligned with me. We're on two different pages.
And that's why he ran in the opposite direction from God's command to speak his message to Nineveh. Jonah should have felt the exceeding gladness that he felt with the growth of the plant, certainly over the salvation of Nineveh. He should have pitied the Ninevites the way he pitied the plant. And better yet, the way God pitied Nineveh. God even seems to stoop. Notice, notice this, the last verse. God even seems to stoop to Jonah's level in verses 10-11 to inspire some pity. And maybe he's even convicting him at the same time. Jonah did feel pity for a plant, so at least he should have felt pity for those who had nothing to do with the atrocities of the Syrian violence. 120 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. Those are infants, children, who had no part of what happened between Assyria and Nineveh. Don't you pity them, Jonah? Or, or how, about, how about cows? Jonah, does that ring in your heart? Wow. But he didn't. Jonah's, here's the point, Jonah's deepest affections, desires, and pleasures are opposite to Yahweh's. So the question that God would ask us, let's take it to us, is this, my child, do your deepest affections, desires, and pleasures align with mine for the salvation of sinners just like you? That's the question we all need to ask ourselves this morning. Do my deepest affections, desires, and pleasures align with God's for the salvation of sinners just like me? You see, the people of the God to whom salvation belongs must be changed by God's grace to share and rejoice in God's passions for the salvation of sinners. Are we? Let me ask you a more personal question. With whom do you feel a little bit like Jonah felt with Nineveh? They've hurt you so many times, it's ridiculous. You don't even want to feel compassion for them. You don't want to keep speaking God's Word to them. You don't want to keep trying to serve them with Christ's love. Maybe it's someone who is an unbeliever to whom you know God wants you to share the Gospel. Maybe it's a believer who is behaving badly, but you know God would have you to keep speaking the truth in love with grace. Can you draw the connection between Jonah's life and yours? That's what the Spirit of God would help us do. Do you have God's heart for that person? Or do you have Jonah's heart for that person? You see, there are many sinister things at work in our hearts that, like Jonah, cause our hearts to be misaligned from God's heart for the salvation of sinners. One is knowledge without love. We know a lot about God, but we don't know God, His heart, His pleasures, His passions, His love for those He made in His image, as we ought to. Another one we could call privilege without mercy. We are content to be children of God, but forgetful of our own sinfulness and God's mercy on us. We think we deserve it. We forget who we really are and, and who we used to be. And we look down on others who are still living in sin. We have no compassion on great sinners because we've forgotten that, like Paul, we are the chief of sinners. Here's one I think that, that Noah was struggling with, or Jonah was struggling with as well, and we may. I call it the misplacement of citizenship. We are more committed to our country, the USA, in this world, and our perceived rights and entitlements in this country than we are to the kingdom of heaven. And the intent of the king to take citizens from every tribe and kindred and tongue and nation and make them his own people. This does not, this does not cross-cut the justice of God, but it also aligns with the heart of God to save. When someone asks you, of whose country are you a citizen, what do you say? I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. And he's saving people from everywhere. That's why we pray for Israel and Hamas, right? We, we, want, we want sinners to be saved because we are sinners just like them. And God has shown us great mercy and grace. We have often a disorientation of affections. 
we value and are more passionate about protecting our own comforts and our pleasant ways of life than we do being used by God to rescue His people, to rescue people, sinners, from their depravity and eternal damnation. Are we more about our comfortable living or the growth of the kingdom of God for the glory of God? You see, this is what's wrong with Jonah, and this is what's wrong with us too. And I'm just as much an object of the conviction of this prophecy as you are. That's why we don't speak the gospel to others the way we ought. We, we peel back the layers of the onion. We might get there and see what God wants us to see. This is why we don't pray for the salvation of sinners as God would have us do. This is why we don't minister to others with the heart of God. God, make our hearts align with yours. Right? That should be our prayer. That's the point of Jonah. We need God to appoint for us great fish. We need some great fish. We need some plants and worms and winds in our own lives to help us align our affections with God's. We're like, we're like the Pharisees sometimes in Luke 18. Thank you, I'm not like other men. Or we're like the elder brother and the prodigal son. They come home, they're saved, and we're like, oh, what about a party for me? And that was the point of Jesus' lessons there. We, like Jonah, have a worship disorder with these things. We've placed our own thoughts over God's. We've elevated our, ourselves over others. We've valued earthly things and earthly pleasures over eternal pleasures. So, so think about it. What stirs our anger? The loss of plants or people to their sin? What stirs our pity? The needs of our plants or the needs of people dying? In sin. What brings out our gladness? The life of a plant or the salvation of sinful people? What brings us displeasure? What makes us want to be done living? What makes us have the heart to live? So very often our hearts beat differently than God's heart, doesn't it? Our values are very different than God's sometimes. Why is that? We don't know God as well as we think we do. We don't delight in God Himself as we delight in earthly things. We don't delight in what delights God as we ought to. If we delighted in God, we would delight in the saving works that His perfections produce. We don't even know ourselves as we really are in our sinfulness. We don't grieve over our sin as we ought to. We think we're better than others. We try to stand in judgment over others, handing out mercy and punishment as we see fit. We've forgotten the mercy and forgiveness of God toward us in Christ. Just like Jonah. We value earthly things over eternal things. Carefully think about these things, dear ones. Don't, don't look at all this and think, well, that's not me, and dismiss it. Take it in carefully, prayerfully. So what do we need? We need God's grace, just like Jonah. And it's abundant for us because we're sinners too. We need the God to whom salvation belongs to deliver us from much remaining depravity. We need, we need an Isaiah-like experience. That's what we need. We, Isaiah-like experiences over and over and over again. We need to see God's holiness like never before. We, we need to see our own sinfulness like never before and grieve over it like never before. We need to feel intensely our need for His mercy and grace from a place of understanding of our depravity and a desperation for Him. We've got to experience the greatness and goodness of His saving power and love in such a way that we're overwhelmed by it, humbled by it, changed by it, delighted by it. And then... Then we'll rejoice in God like never before. And we'll rejoice in what brings God joy and glory. We'll rejoice in our own salvation. We'll rejoice in the salvation of other sinners. We'll rejoice in, in eternal things more than plants, right? We will rejoice in being a mouthpiece for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just like, just like Isaiah, here am I, send me. May God so reveal himself to us that we will be changed and our affections, desires, passions aligned with His. 
Our hope is the Lord to whom salvation belongs. We can't turn on a switch this morning and just make it happen in all of us. I wait on God. Our expectation is from Him. God, do this to me. Change my heart to reflect yours. Let's ask Him. Let's confess to Him what we see. Let's pray to Him when we gather for prayer throughout the week and ask Him to make us align with Him. And then, if we do experience His transformation like that, we'll go wherever God would have us to go. We'll say whatever God would have us to say. We'll do so with God's heart, with His grace. We'll see ourselves as He sees us. We'll see others as God sees them. We'll delight in His mercy and salvation and glory. And we'll be faithful servants to speak the word. So to whom has God called you to speak His message of salvation and grace? Is it a spouse? Your child? A parent? Maybe another family member, a friend, a co-worker? A neighbor, a fellow church member. To whom and where has God called us even as a local church working together to speak His message? At the park, at the fair, at the college, at the jail, a nursing facility. To those who are dealing with socially unacceptable life-controlling sins. There's so many groups all around us and within us. To those who are dealing with LGBTQ issues maybe. To those who live with various disabilities. Who will it be? Who will be the Nineveh, so to speak, that God says, I want you to go and speak the message that I have for you? God delights in saving other sinners for whom we struggle to share God's heart. And God delights in saving us from having the heart of Jonah. And so may God humble us and prepare us and equip us by his grace to speak his word with his heart to those to whom he has called us. And again, the reason we don't have to hold on to Jonah's heart here as we interact with other sinners just like us is because the heart of Jonah doesn't even cause another heart to change, does it? Sometimes we, we think it will. I'll just show them enough anger, they'll change. No. Only the Lord can change sinners because we know for certain that what? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Let's confess together our Jonah-like hearts, shall we this morning? Let's do that. and Receive his forgiveness afresh and ask him to change us by his grace. And my dear friend, if you're here today and you've not yet turned from your sin to Christ to be forgiven and rescued and changed, today is the day. Listen to the Word of God. All this, all this salvation, this reconciliation is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. God in Christ was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against Him. And is entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Because our, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In what are you hoping to be standing right before God in eternity someday? Is it Christ alone? His righteousness? His cross? His resurrection? He alone can save. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Trust in Him. Turn from sin. Rest in Christ. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we have come to the end of this prophecy. And we have wrestled with the heart of Jonah. And we have wrestled with our own hearts. And we know you did not give this book to us because we have nothing to change. We confess that we are too much, too often like Jonah. 
God, forgive us. But as I stand as one man before your word, I look at who I want to be. And I know that I cannot do it for myself. And I know that I pray for and in the place of my brothers and sisters in Christ here. We want to be done with the heart of Jonah. We want your heart, Father. Align our affections with yours for the salvation of sinners. And do all the detail work way down deep in our hearts to get us there. Father, please. Otherwise, we'll never, we'll never be able to proclaim your word like you would want us to. Thank you that you did not give up on Jonah. Thank you that you won't give up on us. Thank you that you won't get up, give up on those we love who are in Christ. Help us to hope in you, not in ourselves. Help us to remember to look at our sinful anger when it comes up. To see what you are revealing about our hearts. And to turn to you to be changed. To rest in you. To take our contentment in you. Our refuge in you. Thank you that you are king. Thank you that we are your citizens. Thank you that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and righteous to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we ask for your grace. We affirm your forgiveness in Christ. Having confessed what we see. And Father, I pray that the word of the cross would not be foolishness to the one here who is yet unbelieving. May they humble themselves before the cross and see there their sin your wrath against sin and your love to save from sin. And may they rest in the finished work of Christ right now. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.